Hello and welcome to this interview where we'll be talking about a, a, a little discussed corner of World War II, uh, the war in India against the Japanese and the, the siege of Kohima. And uh, I'm joined by Luke Parker. How are you, sir? Very well. Thank you, Bo. And uh, you are here on behalf of the Kohima Educational Trust. I am, yes, yes. And that's an organisation that um, are dedicated to sort of, apart from anything else, apart from anything else really raising awareness for this part of the, the war and the people that, the indigenous people in India that live there? Yeah, well, I want to raise awareness in order to raise the profile of the charity so that obviously we can give more back to the people because the, the whole point of the charity started um, a veteran called Gordon Graham. Um, he went back to Kohima 10 years after and he wrote a piece for, I think it was the Sunday Times, I can't remember now. Um, called The Trees Are All Young on Garrison Hill, which was one of the main features of the Koima battle, particularly the siege. Um, he went back, had a look round and realised that the country is poor and in need. And he thought the best way to give something back would be to help the children get an education. I think that is really important that it was something along those lines, something that's really practical that will help the actual people. So, and I think as well, it, I think he'd been to a lot of, um, a lot of services dedicated to the fallen soldiers and everything. And it's, I think it felt hollow really to just concentrate on the soldiers because the Naga people did so much that um, they needed to be remembered basically. Right. So. So they're the sort of indigenous peoples from that part of the world. Yes, they are, yeah. So let's try and put this story in context. Um, one of the first things I would say about it is that a lot of the people that fought out there, or the 14th Army, yes, uh, sort of been colloquially called the Forgotten Army. Mm -hmm. Because, so first of all, say it's the war in the Pacific, the war in the Far oh, East yeah. against Japan. Now, most people's idea of that war is that um, the Americans fought over the Japanese islands Yes. That was sort of it. It was a war just between Japan and America. But of course, the reality is that there's much, much more to it than that. Yes. And what we're going to talk about here, the Battle of Kohima or the Siege of Kohima, is actually, we'll be drilling down quite a lot into that, drill down many layers before we get to there. Yes. So I thought maybe yeah. I could do sort of a bit of an overview, and we can talk about that as I go, Yes. Uh, before we actually get to Kohima, so we can put it sort of fairly firmly in its context. Cool. So first of all, just to say, then to start that the the Japanese aggression in the Far East in the, all through the 1930s that they essentially invaded China the Chinese incident as they called it and um, all of that is a massive story but to cut that short to just drill straight down into another layer after Pearl Harbor in December 41 um, Japan sort of go all out to invade vast swathes of, of East Asia, it's a, all the way down into Indochina, which is modern Vietnam. Huge expansion. Burma, huge. Thailand, yeah. all of it. Yes. Um, I think, I, I know a, a historian called Robert Lyman, who's an absolute expert in this. He's, um, he's the man who knows everything about this subject. Um, he was saying Pearl Harbor's almost a, a distraction, really keep the American Navy from getting involved in what they wanted to do because they really wanted to just expand. And they did, really. They succeeded very quickly. Mm. Probably too quickly because I think 
they spread so far and wide that it was probably not possible to control it once they once they've done it because obviously once you've made that many enemies as well and you've spread yourself so thin you there's at least going to be parts of you that are vulnerable mm. but um well and as well by the time the Koima battle started the um the japanese really they weren't putting on any offensives at all this was the very last land mm. offensive that they tried because mm. it wore a very very much last ditch effort you could say Kohima is sort of the higher watermark of the expansion of the Japanese Empire. Yeah. In, yeah. in the uh, uh, sort of westward, anyway. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they expanded all the way down. They took Singapore famously, one of uh, the British Empire's uh, worst, in fact, one of our biggest surrenders ever, if not the biggest single surrender of men, was at Singapore. Yeah. And, you know, they were starting to push on to, is worrying they might try and invade Australia and things. Yes. But it's interesting to note that they, we're going to be talking really about Burma and on into India itself. And so I'll put map ups in post as always. But from a map, you can see that India and China have got a massive border with each other, which is largely the Himalaya range. Yes. However, if you get to the end of the Himalaya range, going eastwards, you end up at Burma or Myanmar. Mm -hmm. And so it can be described that Burma is a land bridge, in inverted commas, between India and China. Yes, because the Himalayas, um, the eastern end of the Himalayas, they're called the hump. They nicknamed it the Hump, uh, which is where they took the supplies from Assam over into China. So to... you'd have to fly over the Hump. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because obviously mm. you can't, there's no other way around. So, mm. Which is apparently um, a horrible, a horrible thing to do as well. It's um, really dangerous. Well, yeah, I think, uh, well, you know, because the peak of Everest is up around cruising range, so uh, cruising altitude. So, um, yeah, it's... Yeah, it wouldn't be a pleasant flight, I wouldn't have thought. Not in an unpressurised cabin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the Japanese, they started to invade Burma sort of straight away, or is that is to say early in 1942, so not long after Pearl Harbour. Within a few months of Pearl Harbour, Japanese troops were pouring into Burma. Now, where, as I say, maybe the very low resolution people think it was just the United States versus mm. um, Japan. Well, actually the French because Indochina modern day Vietnam was 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 French um there were lots of Dutch um territories yeah, the Dutch East oh, Indies and yeah, right yeah so actually really um it was the United States Great Britain the Dutch and the French all had interest yes and then of course India itself I mean India was part of the British Empire and we had uh, sort of one of their biggest capitals was in Calcutta which is on that side of India mm -hmm. um uh, but, and so the British Empire is, you know, a mixture of people as well. There was like Gurkhas involved and yes. Australian troops, well, obviously um, Scots and Irish and Welsh. And the actual, um, the Indian army, the British Indian army at Coima was, I think it was over 80% Indian. Right, right. And it was, um, the Second World War kind of um, encouraged the British to, to recruit from other parts of India that weren't considered soldierly. Mm. So they actually had a mix of every part of India, which that's the first time that had happened. And then when, consequently, when we left, when we withdrew from India altogether in 1947, we actually left them with um, a really decent army, which you need. If you're going to be mm. a country, you do need mm. it. So they, they, they really benefited from that. And railroads. Yeah, and yeah. civil yeah. service. Yes. Lots of things, actually. Um, yeah, lots, of, um, lots of naughty stuff as well. 
And so uh, I've mentioned Singapore was one of the, our worst defeat uh, surrenders. Yes. Um, one of our longest, I think it might be the longest fighting retreat was across Burma. So the Japanese army invade. Yes. And the British army of what was there sort of essentially fought a very, very long extended fighting retreat. Yes. All the way back, ultimately, uh, mainly across northern Burma, um, all the way ultimately back into India itself. Did a, a lot of them actually came through Kohima? A lot of the refugees, um, they set up yeah. um, they set up stations, um, like cookhouses and everything, so they could feed them as they came through. Because, um, like you say, it was you had the army fighting a fighting retreat, but also you have a massive amount of people because a lot of Indians lived in Burma and as soon as the Japanese invaded the tables just turned completely and the Bur Burmese wanted them out mm. so there was a huge huge amount of people moving and a mm. lot a lot of people died well because everyone had seen how the Japanese treated the peoples under them for example in China in all throughout the 30s um, yeah the, the the yeah the japanese especially sort of the military the military police and things could be very very brutal yes and uh the british empire for, for all its faults was just not anyway not, not the same beast no. so people would rather live under the british raj than the than the imperial japanese yoke i mean it was a no-brainer to nearly everyone oh, it seemed. yeah i think um if you're going to choose one between one or the other then right. yeah, yeah certainly and so the Japanese um, controlled Burma all this time. And um, as you mentioned, a lot came through Kohima. Again, I'll put a map up, map up so everyone knows exactly what I mean. And I've said this in all sorts of epochs. It's true all over the world, especially in places where there's not a great deal of roads and a great deal of railways, is that you end up being funneled through some very specific valleys, quite often, yes, some yeah. very specific passes. There's just sort of no other way around it. And anyway, Kohima and Imphal are on those. It's sort of, if you're going to go on foot or, or on a wagon or on a horse, even on a car, in a car, if you're going to go from northern Burma into India, there's just a very few, I think two really, two main places you're going to be funneled into. And this is the, the small town of Kohima and another a slightly bigger place, Imphal. Imphal, yes. Right? Um, well, yeah, there were, um, there was only one main road and it went through both, but that, went, that runs north-south. Um, but the Japanese, well, the refugees first came east to west, and then obviously the Japanese followed in 1944. Um, but over no roads, really. There was, they actually um, they sent a pioneer car out and um, they built bridges to try and make it as efficient as possible and sorted all the tracks out so that when they, they marched through, they could cover the ground that they wanted to cover because they they had a, a time limit set by the rations which was mm. uh pretty insane but mm. um mm. yeah well that that was a part of the run doing but we'll come to that later so that is i think big part of this story perhaps one of the sort of fundamental things to say near the beginning is that um how few roads there were and that the nature of the terrain in northern burma and that part of sort of extreme eastern india is uh, everyone says, everyone agrees, some of the most extreme uh, ground you can fight on. Yeah, I, I think 
I, I would go so far as to say it's some of the most extreme ground you could go for a walk on. Right. Literally. It's, yeah, yeah. If, well, you've got mountains, the, the covered in jungles, the valley bottoms, if it's warm weather, it's deathly humid, horrible mosquitoes, leeches and all that. And then you get up onto the mountain sides in, in the summer, in the hot months, it's absolutely boiling. It's mm. red hot. And then when you get to the top of them mountains, you could literally, you could be baking during day and then it could be hailstorms on a night. Like they get some pretty extreme weather, even when it's not the monsoon. Mm. But then obviously when the monsoon hits, you're on mountains that are made of mud, basically then. And you can't, obviously, all the positions, nearly every position is always at the top of a hill. Mm. Mm. We're generally in a village, so... Yeah, you're always walking to the top of an hill, basically. <laughs> so it's so it's jungle, yeah, rainforest, really. And um, I've been to some tropical parts as well. Well, gone through jungle, and there's there's sort of there's jungle, and then there's real hardcore jungle. And this is as crazy as it gets. I mean, anyone that knows about Vietnam and uh, Vietnam experience, it's sort of that level. It's sort of as challenging as jungle can be, where there's you know there's giant insects most not most things a lot of things are poisonous yeah a lot of things are looking to kill you basically insects well, and plants and everything well my, my grandfather was a chindit and um they were they were obviously in the jungle and he did say he said a few times it's like take the japanese out of the equation completely that would have still been awful right yeah it would have still been a a, a real massive challenge right to get over it but so a lot of them the, yeah, the casualties are more from disease than from combat. Yes, yeah. So you mentioned the Chindits there. Let's, uh, before we get on to Kohima itself, yes. let's talk a touch about the Chindits. So um, it was the British and Americans, actually. It's one of those things where different nations quite often like to take credit for things entirely. <laughs> um, so we like to think, the British like to think, we fought the war against the Japanese in Burma. But there was a lot of Americans there. There was, yeah. Um, and so, but so when Japan took Burma, one of the things we did under General Wingate is to put together some sort of commando stroke early proto special forces chaps I... that got called Chindits. Yeah. And they were, gli par not parachuted, glided deep, deep behind enemy lines, sometimes a couple hundred miles behind enemy lines, sometimes for months on end, Long-range penetration groups. That's what they call them. So yeah, like right. the SAS in North Africa, but, but for much longer, much deeper behind enemy lines. So like the SAS, but more intense, if anything. And these guys were called the Chindits. Yes. And your grandfather was one. Yes, he was. And their experiences were horrific by and large, weren't they? Uh, yeah, it didn't sound right nice, definitely. <laughs> um, I think he said he weighed about five and a half stone when he came back out. And he, were there for th Ooh. he was out for three months. That's close to death then, as an adult man, to be that. Yeah, well, um, it's pretty much exactly the same size as me. So, like, I'm 5'8 or whatever, and I weigh 11 stone. So, so yeah. There were it would be close to organ failure and death. Uh, yeah. So he's lucky he survived. Yeah, and um, I think, really, he probably got to that weight purely because he got all the way to the end of it. He managed to survive the whole thing. Because um, a lot of lads, they, they were coming out full of malaria, um, cholera, typhoid, all manner of diseases. And some of them... Tree is a big one. Oh, yes. Well, not only that, the Naga Hills 
apparently there's a huge um, magnesium level in the water. Oh, really? I didn't know that. This is new to me. So apparently, even without dysentery, it's it's going through you, basically. So yeah, yeah. So there were <laughs> even if they weren't ill, they were probably suffering from diarrhea. So exactly as you say, even take the Imperial Japanese Army out of the equation to spend months on end, like you say, a couple of months, sometimes up to five months. I understand. There was deep, um, deep in the jungle there, and there's um, one African brigade that apparently were out for nine months. They were out for the longest out of anybody. Wow. So, and it, that's a that's a survival ordeal. Oh yeah. Unless yeah. you unless you really learn how to survive off the jungle, you're not going to make it. No, no, you you you're brown bread. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the leeches you mentioned. Many many accounts. Lots of accounts are sort of. The leeches, yeah, and we and um, sores. Well, you mentioned monsoon during the monsoon season, obviously, you're constantly drenched, really. Yeah, drenched. yeah. And when it's not monsoon season, it's so humid anyway that you're essentially wet through, yeah. And you're supposed to be carrying giant packs, you're supposed to be marching all the time. One of the, uh, as I'm sure you know, one of the um, sort of sayings of the chindits, or informally anyway, you know, if you don't march, you die. You know, yeah. that was sort of uh, accepted, not a saying, sorry. It was just an accepted fact that if you can't march, they probably will have to leave you behind. Yes. And I think um, on Operation Longcloth in 1943, um, the first Chindi operation, and they, they marched in and marched back out. There was no gliders. Um, it was all on foot. Well, that was... Um, I forgot my point. <laughs> Or a horrific experience for them. Well, yeah, yeah. There was something specific about that. I was going to say about Caramon. Well, the sores, because you, if you can't, if your feet are so sore that you can't march anymore. Sorry, yes, that is what I was going to say. Um, So basically, on the first operation, if you fell by the wayside, and they did use that phrase, those exact words, um, you were given like a enough ammunition to kill yourself basically um and you did just literally get left um there were a really really minute amount of people who survived and some of them they call it went native and they found them in 1944 yeah. <laughs> and they went back just living with with natives yeah. um but yeah but by the time the second by, by the time operation thursday came about in 1944 that's the second big the second big the operation the um it was a lot better a lot better organized they had strongholds with actual airstrips so that it was possible it still wasn't a guarantee but it was definitely much more possible to get people out mm. and mm. the nagas helped a great deal with um the chindits that operated around kohima specifically the angami nagas around there they they were very they were instrumental really Oh, God, absolutely, yeah. When all these things where you find Western or American or Australian troops or something fighting extremely far-flung, extremely remote corners of the world, and then they're always absolutely relying on the indigenous people. They called one, one of the jungle saws specifically the Naga saw, and apparently oh. that would, um, it's that quite small, and it would just spread, but it would go really deep into your flesh, really eat into your, into your skin and your muscles and everything and cause some right damage. 
Well, eventually, if it goes septic, it gets infect infected, you get blood poisoning and then you're done, really. Yeah, sepsis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And so that's the thing. In jungles, in extremely hot and humid places like this, and you're in the jungle, uh, sort of almost any open wound will almost certainly get infected. Yes. And you'll get sores from all over your feet and from carrying a pack and all sorts of things, just by the nature of being damp all the time and moving around all the time let alone any sort of nick or cut. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's not worth, not worth cutting yourself at all in that, that and environment. So, and so, it was only really the, the fittest of the fit that would kind of hope to survive in a way. Yes. You know, if they, for the chindits, I know that they didn't really want people over the age of 30. Because no. you're past your prime. And, and, and they need young men, they need guys that are like 24, 25, and as fit as possibly could be. And even they often just didn't survive. They, um, they called it an, an RTU. So if you if you faltered in the training, they'd just give you this RTU return to unit, right? And they'd send you back. Well, that's a famous thing, from, isn't it? Yeah. That the chindit training was extremely arduous. Oh man! Like most guys would get malaria during the training or, or something. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's the the old adage of train hard and fight easy. Right. Uh, so if you've trained with malaria, then at least you have half an idea what it might be like to fight with malaria because you're not going to have an option. You're going to have to fight. So, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's extreme, I think, is the, the best word, really, to describe yeah. the training because um, one account, it basically, they marched day, for a full day and a full night. They did river crossings. And then right at the very end of it, they had to put in um, a mock attack onto a village. And he said, well, like, you're not even, you're not functioning properly because you're not there, you're exhausted. Mm. And obviously, a lot of them will have been poorly while they were training, like you say. So it'll have been absolutely horrible. And I imagine a lot of people will have fallen out, definitely. But Yeah, I mean, malaria is, is no joke. Absolutely no joke. There's this thing, some people in, there's some sports, aren't there, where, like footballers really, if they've got any sort of injury, they just don't play. Yeah. There's other people, more like rugby players or MMA fighters. Yeah. They talk about, you're sort, no, you're always injured. Yeah. You're sort of always, you're playing and you're always carrying some sort of injury. They said that about the chin dip. Yes. like you're fighting, but you're actually always unwell or, yeah. or slightly wounded or something or other, or just suffering from dysentery whilst having to march through the hardest jungles on earth and then fight off, hopefully, Japanese ambushes or something. I mean, yeah, extreme is the word, I think. Yes. Very, very extreme. And it's a shame, and it's what we're trying to do here, it's a shame that a lot of people haven't even heard of the Chindit. Yeah. They don't know anything about the war in Burma or the, or the siege of Kohima or anything at all. I think the, the Chindits is about the, the, the only one that you might, people might have heard of, yeah, but, yeah, hopefully, but, hopefully. but heard of. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they won't know anything about it, but like, oh yeah, I've heard of that before. But um, it's quite good in a way because if you want to talk to people about stuff, like most people know about what happened in Normandy and all that, don't they? Like the gen that that side of the war, like the the European side's really incredibly well documented, and especially anything where the Americans were involved, like they've photographed and videoed like most of what was going on. So there's there's absolutely huggings of information and then you look at northern india and burma i mean 
you're not taking one of them old cam- 1940s cameras out in a, a monsoon. <laughs> so you're not getting mm. any photos when that's going on. Mm. And generally, you're probably not getting many journalists who could be, who actually had the inclination to go out there and to cover it. They, they really didn't bother. Was... Well, yeah, well, a small note on that. I know that the, specifically the Chindits, who were only actually one small part, really, of that whole war effort in Burma. Oh, God, they were yeah, sort of yeah. the commando guys. But on their expeditions, you weren't allowed to take uh, cameras. A couple of guys did smuggle them in anyway. Yes, yeah. So there are a few pictures of Chindits actually in action and stuff. Uh, but yeah, at Kohima, for example, as big as it is, and some historians have said it's sort of a war-turning battle. Yeah. Um, there's about 10 hours worth of footage, I believe. Some, I've read, I saw somewhere someone say, say that, which is to say not very much at all. Oh, God, no. Well, that'll be... If there's 10 hours of footage, there's probably nine hours of just garbage. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, out of just this giant event. Uh, but that's often the way it goes in wars, isn't it? Sort of D-Day is the big famous thing, or Dunkirk or something. Yeah, and, and or, also D-Day happened on the 6th of June. And there was a big build-up to it. There's obviously, a, it was secret, but it was obvious we were building up towards something. And I think, I think just the Indian conflict just really did just get forgotten about, especially over 1944, 1945. They really, it wasn't important, really. It wasn't important immediately to what, what most of people in Britain were going through. Right, okay, I see what you mean. Because I'd say, obviously, strategically, it was massively important. But what you mean there, I think, and I would agree with, is that it wasn't important to sort of the consciousness of the people in Britain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. They were told, we need to defeat Mr. Hitler in Germany. And that's the main thing. And that the the Americans are slowly winning the war in the Pacific. And you're not really told about all the division, the the, the 14th Army, isn't it? The 14th Army in India. Yes, Conversely, though, um, unless you had a brother who was fighting in Europe or, or some relatives who were fighting in Europe, the Chintits weren't very interested in what was going on in Europe. They were, a, mm. they were in the jungle suffering massively. It's like, I don't care. I don't care if you're storming a beach in Normandy. I, I'm here doing this. Because mm. mm. I, I think that as well, I think it would be easy really really easy to get sucked into your own part of what's going on because if you're fighting a war it's possibly the most visceral extreme scenario that you're going to go through in your life and when you've trained with all these other lads they'll be like your family so when they get killed like you're not going to be thinking about hitler at that point, are you? That, that's mm. just really not going to matter when you've got your mate with his guts hanging out, dying in front of you. That's just really not going to be important. And I think, I imagine if you went anywhere in the world during the Second World War, I think it would be the same. I think people would be really, really tunnel vision on their own scenario. Yeah, and you're regard- encouraged to be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way you do your job. You say they're like family. In a sense, a lot of men say this that they're closer than family, that in, in some senses, in combat, the buddies that are the sharer, and they had an actual buddy system in the Chindits, yeah. but um, your buddies, uh, metaphorically or actually, in the trench with you, uh, you form a closer bond than anything else in your whole life. So often closer than your own children and things. Yeah. Is that you can never, 
have a stronger bond than that. Um, and so it's sort of ultra intense again, that sort of the human aspect. I wonder if that plays into the, the concept of the quiet fathers, the guys that just came back, didn't talk very much unless they got angry, really. And, and it, well, it broke a lot of men. Oh, absolutely. Did your grandfather talk about it much do you, that you remember? Yeah, he talked really? about it a lot. Right. Yeah, he, he, he was quite <laughs> some unusual. Some do, yeah, a lot yeah. go quiet, but some, yeah, yeah. it's all they want to talk about. I mean, that's much rarer, but that certainly does happen, doesn't it? It was um, up until my grandmother died, he talked about it, but he talked about a lot of what went on in India whilst he was training and all the, you know, the stuff that went on. Because he, he spent four years out there but he spent three months in actual combat mm -hmm. so there's a, a massive amount of experience just just being out in india and, and he loved it he loved that place he, he learned a lot of hindi with taxi drivers around where we live are, are often asian so like if we got in a taxi then he'd be talking in hindi to regardless <laughs> of whether they talked hindi or not <laughs> but um yeah he, he he just absolutely loved the place he loved the people he just, I think he, he could have easily stayed in the army and he could have lived in India. I think he would have been happy with that, but obviously he came home and... And he was at Kohima, I understand. He was, the Chindits, the Chindits were not trained for anything to do with Kohima, uh, but one brigade got left in reserve and then they got taken, Slim took them for Kohima and they, they got sent... General Slim, the leader General of the Slim, British, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the main man. Um, they were sent around the flanks of the Japanese. So as the Japanese were coming in, they were coming around the back of them, really. And then they were sort of village hopping, trying to weed the Japanese out of the villages as they went. So just to say, the Chindits aren't necessarily particularly associated with the Siege of Kohima itself. No. But no. there were some there, and your grandfather yes, yeah. happened to be one of them. Yeah, so um, the yeah, 23rd Brigade, that, that's their brigade, and their, their battle honours are Kohima. Right. Okay. So, well, but right. all the rest of them are Operation Thursday. Okay, right, yeah. Um, so just before we get on to the actual details of when the Japanese pushed into Info and the Siege of Kohima itself, just a few more words just to say, uh, I'd like to mention that, um, that it wasn't just British commandos. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.